we really have the chance now to sort of turn things on the head and, and look at the circularity side, get out of the linear economy, get into the circular economy. And I think that's something the UK could you know, lead the world on. We, we could, just as we did with the industrial revolution, we could have the, the, uh, the circular economy revolution. The big problem there is, is their copper levels slowly sort of rising because every time it's recycled, you get more of these contaminants when there's tin, other things in there as well. I mean, Mike, he canes me about this because he says every week I end up having a conversation with someone that turns into a conversation about a blast furnace. If we're sensible, the blast furnace could have a much longer life than, than people have, have been sort of touting over the last 10 years. I think that that's, you know, as, as Pete said, I mean, one of the key things is that we, we make sure that we can actually design for recycling. Almost as if you could sort of take a Trident, uh, you know, Trident submarine, throw the submarine away, keep the power plant. So you've got 40 years there that's safe enough for, for people to be in close proximity to underwater for long periods of time, you know, have something like that actually as a power plant for not just a steel plant, but, you know, a steel plant plus all of the other foundation industry or associated supply chain all on one site. Episode two, Metal Guys Talk Business. We were down south of this one in Swansea talking to Richard Curry of Sustain. Interesting part. It was interesting. Very technical. Very kind of talking about green steel. And just, yeah, I mean, they've got one hell of a setup, haven't they? You know, the investment that's been put into the uh, into that project, into the university, is, is great, isn't it? You know, and it's um, it's nice to see in that part of the part of the country as well that just how steel still such a main part you know big big industry studies isn't it obviously you're going past the port talbot site and then going into sustain and listening to what they're trying to do with working with their partners i think you know making british steel the kind of you know back well, on richard's like trying to you know he's so passionate in fact more more of the people that i've met through sustain and some of the kind of the other projects that are going on around the country at some of the other unis, there's, there's some really, really passionate people about UK manufacturing and UK steel manufacturing because, you know, I think we need we need to support it. You need an industry. So it's an exciting time to be around UK manufacturing, isn't it? You know, if you look at what's been around for like the last 12 to 18 months, there's some really great opportunities that have kind of people have landed because of, the way the world's been and I think what's promising about it is these kind of projects that have normally been sent off elsewhere are going to be staying in the UK and that's just it's great to hear isn't it mm. but yeah Richard kind of goes through what sustainer about I think if you're interested or you're working in the metal supply chain mills manufacturers distribution all the way down to the homes and fabricators using materials um, I think you take a lot from this podcast both me and Mike left kind of fried didn't we really don't take a lot from me day. does it <laughs> but we could have been there all day yeah, couldn't we 100%. really diving into it so I think it gives a good snapshot in best part of an hour um, of what they're about and, and kind of some of the thought processes um, going forward in the industry take a listen say what you think enjoy <laughs> hey guys Peter Mike the metal guys uh, we are recording Swansea University today with Richard Curry. Now, Richard, I read your LinkedIn and it said the following, metals and foundation, industry champion and technical expert. Explain. Okay, so um, 
obviously, uh, the UK is, uh, you know, does lots of really good things and, and, you know, the government are really happy to sort of promote things like, you know, your Rolls Royces and maybe it's not so much today and all your high tech stuff. But the key thing is, is if we don't have um, the foundation industries, which are, you know, obviously uh, cement, metals, bulk chemicals, glass, all that sort of thing. If we don't have that as a foundation, then we've got nothing to build on. We've got that high quality to build on. So in the last sort of 30 years, there's been a massive downward spiral in the foundation industries in general in the UK because it's obviously much, much cheaper to import from, from outside of the country, you know, and you've got, uh, you've got all these countries that have much lower operational costs. And we've really struggled and we've had, you know, obviously people make, taking advantage of that and making a quick book and wiping out industrial sectors like textiles or whatever, but foundation industries is very important. And I think um, it needs to have somebody who is um, sort of, you know, shouting its case and, and trying to find ways to make it, um, you know, cost effective, more efficient. And I think given, you know, that we're in this, uh, this age of, of greenness where everything's got to be sort of, it's, it's given us our, our chance to really, you know, we've got a new angle to, to quote things. So if you, if you look back at um, sort of the industrial revolution led by the UK, we had the raw materials and we had the innovation um, and we sort of made things happen. We've sort of been, we've experienced that and other countries have, have sort of uh, taken advantage of that with the operational costs, that sort of thing. And we've just stayed still. And I think this gives us the opportunity now to really look at our foundation industries, which is the, you know, there's a foundation of everything that's, that's sort of made in the UK and everywhere. And obviously I'm much more focused on steel than, than the others, but um, I think they all have a, have a place. And if you look at everything that's made today, um, you know, your laptops, um, your microphones, monitors, whatever, it's all lots of different materials, including steel, including glass. Um, I don't think there's any cement in there, but, um, you know, you've got um, outputs from bulk chemicals, that sort of thing. If you were to recycle that, you've probably, in most cases, you've got a situation where you've got a lot of steel or another metal or whatever, and then you've got all these other things. We could really start, you know, recycling that and, and putting it back in the system, circular economy, that sort of thing. And I think that's where the future lies for the UK. I think we really need to focus on that circularity. And the, this thing about sort of champion for foundation industries is I think, you know, we, we need to really start shouting to say that, you know, we, it's necessary. We need to get the government to really understand that the foundation industries are necessary, but we need to come at it from a totally different angle. So rather than having, you know, government handouts and props and all that sort of thing, we really have the chance now to sort of turn things on the head and, and look at the circularity side, get out of the linear economy, get into the circular economy. And I think that's something the UK could you know, lead the world on. We, we could, just as we did with the industrial revolution, we could have the, the, uh, the circular economy revolution, you know? You know, regarding recycling and green and, you know, in the metals point mm. of view, could you expand on how you see that, see that happening? It's a, it's a tricky one, this, because, um, and, and I've, for many years, I've been sort of accused of sort of banging on the blast furnace when everyone's seen the arc furnace as green, that sort of thing. But um, for, for the UK, in terms of sort of, in terms of circularity, we've got, um, we're probably, because of our industrial maturity, starting the industrial revolution and, and sort of, uh, you know, we're probably the most mature of all, all the nations. We've got to that level of maturity where we have, um, a lot of the metals that, that went into uh, infrastructure building, that sort of thing, construction, you've got like maybe it's a hundred years cycle for that. So we've got a situation where, you know, those materials are starting to come back into the, in, into the realms of recycling. We roughly um, produce about 10 billion tons of scrap a year, of scrap, you know, in steel. 
um, and we only produce 7.2 million tonnes of, uh, of you know, uh, steel products, you know, from your, your big steel plants and things like that. Now, uh, that puts us in a very favourable position. So it's not it's not perfect because we do consume about 21 million tonnes a year, so it's sort of halfway there. But out of all the all the nations of the world, we, we're probably in a in a very good position to actually start this circularity, recycling the scrap, not downcycling the scrap because that that's currently what happens. So currently, what tends to happen is, and this is not just the steel industry; it's it's you know all of the metals, glass as well, you know plastics. So instead of things being recycled, so I guess you know uh, you know a car window becoming another car window, or um, a car bonnet becoming another car bonnet. What tends to happen is it goes down to the lowest of the low. So you would recycle a car and it would become something like rebar. There are other situations where it wouldn't necessarily it'd be a high value sale product, but be a highly alloyed, small volume sort of thing. And I think if we look at the sort of the backbone of, of sort of the, uh, the steel industry in the UK, obviously we've got construction and we've got, uh, you know, automotive and we've got uh, packaging and things like that. And I think we really need to start focusing on making sure that the recycled product is fit to be used to actually recycle rather than downcycle. And it is possible. It does need, um, you know, the significant processing involved to do that. There's still a little bit of research to be done, but it is possible because, uh, you know, there's obviously there's, there's issues with contaminants and things like that. And that's why things do get downcycled. So copper and other things. So if you were to recycle this laptop and I guess there's, there's some steel in there, you might end up with, uh, you know, some silicon stuck in there as well. Some copper from the, you know, the tracks on the circuit board, things like that. It's things like the copper that's the problem because once that's melted, effectively art furnaces today are used as, as to, to basically clean up, you know, the, the, the steel in effect. So you get the scrap, you put it in the art furnace, you melt it, and then hopefully um, a lot of the contaminants come out into the slag. But things like copper, they steer there. And then that becomes a problem because um, copper um, not only has caused problems with the process, it also affects the properties of material and you can't get it out. Very difficult to get out because you're not going to be able to, uh, to, to oxidize that. So it goes in the slag before you do the iron because of the you know, reactivity series. So you're going to end up with, uh, with, with issues. So we've got to make sure that when we do recycle these things, we're not throwing everything into the furnace to recycle it. Um, what we're actually need to do is, is to separate everything um, as best we can and to stop this from, from happening. And it's, it, the, the situation being, it's global. It's not just the UK. It's been going on for a long time. And, you know, the, there's countries like the US where they've switched over the years to a predominantly dark furnace root steel making. They've got less blast furnaces than they've got um, arc furnace um, in terms of production, that sort of thing. So the big problem there is, is their copper levels are slowly sort of rising because every time it's recycled, you get more of these contaminants going there's tin, other things in there as well. The, the, the key thing is, is to make sure that we, um, we, we do actually separate these materials out, which can then feed into the different foundation industry groups. And, and then, you know, we, we have circularity for those groups as well but for steel in particular and then you know aluminium i guess plastic as well it's exactly the same case you've got you've got this uh jaguar land rover so if you if you get a, a new jag it's you know predominantly aluminium yet again you know jaguar will tell you that um, they recycle x percent of, of each vehicle back into whatever what they won't tell you is is that the car bonnet never becomes a car bonnet again it becomes something that's uh, either structural or, or something else because it's got those contaminants. Those contaminants prevent it from being sort of, uh, you know, uh, punched out into the right shape yeah. or drawn or whatever. So 
you know, that's that's what that's what we've got to be be careful about. And I think given you know the regional sort of statement that we've got more scrap than we we produce steel, that gives us a, an edge where we can you know we can start small and then expand. And looking at the UK, I mean, uh, it was what 40, 50 years ago we were producing something like twenty seven million tons of steel a year. We're now producing seven. How many how long ago was that? Nineteen seventies. So it's quite a dramatic drop. Well, I was going to um, jump in with there. I mean, Mike, he canes me about this because he says every week I end up having a conversation with someone that turns into a conversation about a blast furnace. Every single week. He goes, I've never heard someone talk about a blast furnace as much as you do. They're amazing, mate. I know. You've heard it. You had a good go at trying to beat Pete's record uh, <laughs> do, do of 18 in one, in one <laughs> sentence. Blast, <laughs> blast furnaces, though. And it, this is, the, you know, where I was sort of getting at and I mentioned that, you know, I've been accused of, of being the, the sort of the, 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 the guy who's um, defending the blast furnace when there's no room for one. We, you know, globally, we've got 30% of the, if, if you were to make, uh, I think it's roughly two, so like two billion tonnes of steel is made a year, yeah? So only 30% of that is actually coming from scrap because that's all that's available because of the maturity of all the nations. Eventually, hopefully, every nation will be, uh, you know, at that level of maturity. We, we'll probably get there in about 100 years or something where, we, you know, we've gone from 10 million tonnes to, to 21 million tonnes or whatever it is, and you get that stability. Until that point happens, we've only got, you know, 30% and it'll be 35, 40, wherever. And everybody, if everybody goes green with art furnaces, right, we're all going to push the price of Scrabble because everyone's going to be scrabbling for that. that. For the scrap, scrapping for the scrap. And, and it's, it's not going to work. But the other thing is as well, we're always going to need some virgin iron. And everybody as well, everyone seems to be focusing on, you know, hydrogen or, or you know, do we do this? And, and I've almost been, I've been trying to look to see if there's any other sort of chemical methods for, for reduction that we could use. There's an American company, Boston Metals, they, they actually uh, they use electrolysis. And, you know, with uh, electricity, so it's, it's green or whatever. The blast furnace, it, it's been around for, you know, a couple hundred years as we know it. And it's so refined and um, it's so efficient. Um, it's off gases are then used around the plants, you know, and, or, or sold for chemicals, that sort of thing. And, and basically, if we could take the carbon uh, dioxide and monoxide out of, the, out of the blast furnace and then reuse that either. Well, I don't like the storage angle. I like the reuse angle because... I think stuffing all of this carbon dioxide down in a in an ex uh, sort of uh, you know North Sea oil um, hole that's that's been drained, you know it's like it's like putting your rubbish under the mat, you know, and uh, putting the mat over the top, and nobody can see it. If we can reuse that, and given the the fact that everyone's pushing against petrochemicals and extraction that sort of thing, we've got a situation where why can't we use that for the next generation of, uh, of fuels or or things, and I'll talk about this later with Sustain because we've got projects looking at that. But the blast furnace, is there is there a place for um, a blast furnace in Europe in the next 50 to 100 years? I would say, yeah. I can't see, I mean, the, the, the hydrogen DRI technologies and, and things like that, they are quite mature. But when you produce the hydrogen, a lot of, a lot of companies are selling hydrogen that's actually produced from uh, natural gas or whatever. So they're still producing carbon dioxide and it's not a very efficient you know, process. Or you can use electrolysis, which is roughly 60% efficient. So it'd be better to actually use that electricity you know, for something else, you know, rather than waste that and then use the hydrogen. And it's, I think if we're sensible, the blast furnace could have a much longer life than, than people have, have been sort of touting over the last 10 years. 
This podcast is sponsored by the UK Metals Expo. After the successful launch of this event in 2022, the UK Metals Expo will be back at the NEC in Birmingham on the 13th and 14th of September 2023. For podcast listeners, you can secure a 20% discount for booking a stand by quoting the Metal Guys Talk Business when speaking to the event organisers about booking. The UK Metals Expo is an industry event connecting the full supply chain from primary metal manufacture through supply chain, processing, fabrication, surface coating and all the way through to recycling. Effectively, as they used to say in the old days, from melt to market. With full endorsement from the UK Metals Council, its trade members and other industry bodies, the show had great initial credentials and has the potential, in my opinion, to become a huge annual event in the UK, drawing exhibitors and attendees from across the UK and further overseas. With free-to-attend seminars taking place inside the show, it's definitely an event not to be missed by anyone with a career in or around the metal industry. We certainly enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing you in 2023. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. Well, what I was going to um, jump in with, as much as I'd love to hear a bit more about the blast furnace, <laughs> um, it sounds to me like companies that are using steel to produce products, now obviously we, we touched on automotive there, are companies, well, are companies now being, or are governments getting involved with these kind of big manufacturing companies to say, look, we need to stop kind of putting these different chemical compositions or different types of grades of materials together because of the issues that you're outlining? Is this something that's really being pushed at the moment or is it something that people are kind of talking about behind the scenes but businesses are not really being forced to... Are you, are you talking about um, in terms of um, simplify, like uh, using, using things like carbon fibre or things like that? Yeah, I'm looking at scrap. So if you're, look, you're saying to me, a car bonnet ends up being turning into rebar, and then when rebar is scrapped, it's just bugger all, basically, isn't it? At the end? Well, it ends up rebar again, and then yeah. eventually, if the copper levels get above a certain level, mm-hmm. you've just got to landfill it or dilute it down. But is there a way, when you're talking about the contamination element of, say, copper, for instance, mm-hmm. being in these vehicles, um, do we really need to be looking at some of these companies that are producing and saying, look, is there a different way that we can kind of fuse no. these things together? Fuse them together. In terms of like getting those parts together, you know, you're looking at a laptop, for instance, you say, look, we've got metal products in there, but we've also got like bits of copper and then we can't reuse it. So that, to me, that, that's where I'm looking at it. If we're focusing on scrap being something which is going to be really beneficial for the UK, both now and in the future, mm. do we need to be looking at these kind of producers of products? Yes, we do, absolutely. Um, but I think it goes deeper than that. So you're absolutely right. I think simplicity in terms of uh, not just assembly, but disassembly. I think that's... That's, that's where I was going. That's something that I thought so. Yeah. That's something that's key, but it goes deeper than that because over, you know, you're aware of life cycle analysis, you know, so... Um, somebody will, will do an analysis of a car and they'll say, well, if that car's lighter, then it'll, it'll uh, you know, won't need as much fuel to do the same, you know, miles and whatever speed and all that sort of thing. So why don't we look at making a, a, a tougher steel that can be thinner, so it's going to be lighter, it's going to lightweight it, you know? And to do that, you have to add elements to the steel to make it, you know, make it viable, make it work. Problem then is, once those elements are in there, you can't get them out. And if you were to take a life cycle analysis of that material through several cycles, you'd find that it's actually better for the environment um, and better for circularity 
if you actually went for a more basic grade. It's a bit heavier, but you can actually recycle it more easily. And, and you're absolutely right. So, you know, having all these composites and, and sort of, uh, you know, all these different materials together, um, if, it can't, if you can't just separate them, you know, very easily, I think that it, it, it then becomes a massive problem because how do we do it today? We, for a car, for instance, we shred it, right? So we've got these electrical vehicles coming along now and, and just vehicles in general over the last 20 years have had increasing amounts of copper because you've gone from having a situation where you had your, your windy down windows to you've got mortars in there now, so that's copper. You've got, um, you've also got things like uh, rare earth materials like neodymium and the, the magnets and your, your speakers and things. You've got indium tin oxide in your, in your screen and this, you know, that, that sort of came to earth on a meteorite and there's like so, such a small amount, you know, and, and there's a risk that we'll run out of that, in which case, how do we have, we won't let have touch screens because indium tin oxide's uh, one of the only viable um, conductors that's transparent. So, you know, that's obviously why it's, why it's used. But um, I mean, getting sort of back to the original point, we need to start really thinking about when we shred a car, so that's sort of what I was getting to, so to, to take it apart, we don't take all the bits off, separate them and maybe just reuse them. And, and that's something we could do, you know, look at doing in the future. The car's shred as a whole. And as those copper levels increase, now we've got ELVs, so you've got much thicker, you know, uh, copper conductors there to, to sort of power from battery to motor. What happens to that? It's all shredded up together. It's all mixed up and then we separate it. I mean, that, that sounds, you know, if you were to describe that to somebody who, you know, from the future, maybe, you know, who didn't sort of, uh, you know, live as we do and understand things, you'd be like, well, so you're actually, um, you're shredding everything up and you're putting it all, you're mixing it all up and then you're trying to all get all the parts back out again um, and separate them. Like, why would you do that? So I think that that's, you know, as, as Pete said, I mean, one of the key things is that we, we make sure that we can actually designed for recycling. So why can't we have a car where basically you can just rip the whole wiring harness out in one go or the speakers drop out or, you know, there's, there's a way to do it. And, and one thing we've, we've been looking at um, in some of the projects is, is can you be a bit more um, clever about how you sort of process these things? So rather than shredding the whole car, if you know where most of the copper is going to be, can you not just cut the bloody thing in half and then, uh, sorry, can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right. Um, not really swearing though, but um, can you cut it in half and sort of process one part via um, a shredding route where you know you're going to minimise the amount of um, contaminants there and then the other part do like disassembly and then shred or however you're going to do it. So you're, you're absolutely right. I think one of the key things is, is we need to, to ensure that we do design things for the future for ease of recycling, um, not just in terms of disassembly and separation, but also the materials we use. So it may be, in, I mean, there's, there's, since 1990, there's like thousands of new steel grades have been sort of developed, yeah, alloys um, for, for different things with, you know, different properties that are, you know, better for this or that. It might be that we just get back to 10 or one, for, you know, one type of, of, of sort of steel. I doubt it'll get that low, but just so you know that you can recycle it. Because if you put, uh, if you micro alloy steel and you're putting all these like things like, I don't know, vanadium and, and all these other things in, you're not going to get them back out again. So we've got to really think about that for recycling in the future. How did you get involved in all this? I mean, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, not, yeah. Do you want, do you want, do you want the full story? Do you, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, originally, not. I originally was set up to do law for A-levels and uh, and then I, I sort of switched to engineering and uh, yeah, so, um, so, so yeah, I literally, if in 2008 or nine or 10, you'd have said to me, you're going to be working in the steel industry, right? I'd have just, gone 
you know, that's, it's just, you know, I'm not going to wear it. I would never do that. It's not viable. That's we thing. can all, we can all relate to it, that. It's very, it's very strange. And it, it the, the, the way I got in the steel industry is, um, I did my degree in PhD at Durham and, uh, I was doing a, a, an RE at the time. Someone who we became very good friends with, um, Sherry Johnson, she was from, she, she left Teesside Labs when Chorus sort of like became a, a company when Hoogevens in, in the Netherlands, British Steel merged to become Chorus. And they were going to re, uh, they were going to basically close Teesside Labs in Teesside and they were going to close all the different centres and they're going to have one big centre in Sheffield. So a lot of people sort of left R&D. Sherry came to Durham, became a lecturer. And uh, as a result of that, um, you know, sort of, when I did my degree, she was one of the lecturers and so we became friends wherever, but she had very close links with Steel. And she just arranged for me to have a, have a, a trip down there with, um, she, had a, she was supervising another PhD and uh, he was doing a project down there. And I just went down for a look and it just sort of like caught my eye. I just thought this is really interesting. And at the time I was doing uh, bioelectronic uh, devices and, uh, you know, I was looking at sort of brain slices and, and things like that, and designing chips for reading uh, neuronal signals, believe it or not. And I, it just bit me. It's just uh, something visceral about, you know, about liquid steel, about it's like just so unnatural, so difficult. And I was designing sensors for harsh environments, i.e. in body, so salty, salty water. And I was thinking, I better be challenging to develop some sensors for for steel making, you know, we've got 1400 degrees there and you've got all this, you know, stuff going on and it just sort of caught me. Um, I'd only visited the uh, the pilot plant up at the, up at the labs that that, uh, that we eventually sort of span out into MPI, which is still going now. But uh, it sort of caught me and, and I ended up, um, I just thought, well, it'd be nice to just spend a bit of time doing some work. So initially I was sort of signed up for a nine month secondment almost, like it just to, just to do a bit of work there and go back to Durham. And I never went back to Durham. I just sort of stayed there. I got really into it. And then obviously I was sort of working in steel. I was trying to find, I could be sort of most useful, you know, what the, what the issues were. I, I worked mostly in sort of the, uh, the boss. So basically oxygen steel making um, and uh, con gas sort of things. And I just started getting, you know, obviously, at the, so we're talking about what, 2011 through to 14. And it was just at the cusp of all this environmental stuff and obviously the need for, you know, green steel making, green this, that, wherever. And obviously steel after cement is the, the highest um, emitter of, of sort of, uh, of carbon dioxide. And it just bit me and I just sort of started getting really interested in it and, you know, working with people in the steel industry and, the, you know, some absolutely phenomenal people. Like, I mean, you know, really intelligent people, you know, really good people. And uh, it was just a really good environment to, to work. And uh, it was just, yeah, it just bit me. So from then, <laughs> we, we sort of, uh, I sort of worked me up the ranks in, in Teesside Labs and then they were going to close it. And then uh, the three of us sort of, uh, it was uh, me, Gareth Fletcher and Chris McDonald. Chris is still there, he's the, the MD MPI at the moment. And uh, we had an opportunity to, uh, to take it off the, the uh, Indian pans and, and turn it into a, you know, a spin out R&D company and we sort of did that. I did that for a few years. And uh, we'd sort of been working on this sustain thing as part of MPI's one of the the, uh, the the partners in sustain. And yeah, I just uh, I thought I came down here to to give uh, Cameron and Dave Worsley a, a hand. So Cameron played a piece and, and, and Dave Worsley, the two profs, are uh, sort of in this sort of tart of chairs, I guess, down in Swansea, uh, just to help them kick it off. Obviously, the experience from MPI and all that sort of thing. And yet again, um, 
I just really got into it, and uh, you know the 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 circular circular economy side of it really got me because obviously I've got three children, and uh, you know the oldest's just gone twelve, uh, the the other two are a, a lot younger, and and you just think, well, what future are they going to have? You know the way things are going, and I think I'm I'm less worried about the the climate change than I am about materials, and you know having that sustainability for the future to keep reusing these materials that either are becoming very difficult to, to, to mine or, you know, obviously because of the carbon emissions, um, it's becoming uh, very, you know, difficult to justify, uh, you know, mining process and these things. Um, and just having this this circularity and, and obviously everybody's aware that, that the amount that we waste and I mean, even back in the 1990s, they were kicking off about, you know, we're having problems with the landfill and all that sort of thing. And you start looking at your own rubbish and you start thinking like, you know, my God, we're, we're sort of, we're just sort of like disposing of all these things. And, you know, why can't we recycle? And why can't we make, you know, just continue that cycle? Um, and, uh, you know, rather than just dumping everything and starting afresh and sort of keeping the, the resources going. So, yeah, the whole thing just sort of sort of bit me. And I found it far more interesting and fulfilling than um, pissing about with, uh, you know, with... Yeah, with salty uh, water. With rat, rat brains yeah. and, uh, yeah. and turtle... Uh, you mentioned retins. there... 2014 yeah. discussions were going on then about green steel no, 2014 is when we span MPI out so, okay. so that was December 2014 but obviously around that time it was I think industry kind of sort of didn't dis, I wouldn't say they dismissed it but it wasn't really on the agenda but I guess as you know I, I think really it's all this uh, sort of fallout from uh, Greta Thunberg and, and, and you know various other things as well and obviously there's been this this sort of um, culture change, I think, in people. So, you know, previously people didn't give a shit. Um, whereas I think now people in the main are more concerned about the environment and the future. And, you know, they're looking forward rather than sort of looking... Well, we've the, been trained, haven't we, through just like the things at home. You know, like with the councils, we've really been... So it's, it's slowly, we're just getting more educated. Where I think before, we're just completely uneducated about recycling in general, aren't we? Yeah. But, you know, when you started... December 2014, and mm. there must have been people who were around who must have thought, like, you're off your bunk, you know, off your head, like, really. Like, they must have been looking at it because around that time, like you say, recycling, no one, no one cared, did they? In some way, some people did, but the, you know, how's the, how's it gone from 2014 to seven years on? Like, are you surprised with the progress, how quickly it's been, it's been made? I'm really surprised in the, the cultural shift, actually, because it did feel like for years you'd be sort of banging on the drum and, and you know, nobody would listen. It's um, yeah. I just want to make a statement here, though, because a lot of people see the steel industry as being dirty, Dickensian almost, sort of emitters of all these emissions and, you know, it's destroying the environment and all that. The steel industry is probably in the forefront of recycling have been for for many years, you know, and, and, you know, nothing really goes to waste in the steel plant. So, um, you, even your slag is sort of, you know, it's all the tarmac and it's, it's what constitutes most of the, so blast furnace like constitutes most of the roads in, in, in the UK, you know? So, um, thought I'd get that in for you there, but it's, you know, um, the, the blast furnace gas, um, you know, um, and coke oven gas, it's, it's all sort of reused around the plant. Um, you know, it's used to make other chemicals, you know, the, the, the heat, you know, reused and all that sort of thing. Steel, steel plants are, uh, do you know what? I, I felt, I actually felt quite sorry for steel in a way because it's almost like they were at the forefront. And then when the government comes in and other industries weren't and the government comes in and say, right, you need to do a 10% change or something. You know, I'm just giving an example. And they've already pushed the envelope like really far. 
And as you know, to get those extra percent, you know, it becomes more and more difficult. And it's almost like it was like really difficult for steel for the volume that the sort of um, that the produce as well. And nobody takes that into account, you know. Um, but um, it's just seen as this like this figure that um, you know globally we're putting was it four four billion tons of uh, of CO two in the atmosphere just from making steel, you know. And it's uh, it is a big number. But when you think of the societal contribution of steel, we wouldn't be sat doing this now, you know. We wouldn't be if, if steel didn't exist, we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have, we might have computers, but they'd probably be a bit like sort of ZX Spectrums or something, you know, it's, it's all, you know, steel is behind lots of things. It's sort of hidden. So you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a mask aligner for doing your chips without steel, you know, and you wouldn't have, um, you probably wouldn't have SEMs and various sort of analysis technologies that we, we have, you know, you, we wouldn't, we probably wouldn't know anything about the, you know, the Higgs boson or anything because we wouldn't have been able to, you know, do the, uh, you know the the the, the CERN um, thing and the stuff that's happening in the states as well. It's steals like an unsung hero hero of you know modern the modern age. I think this podcast is sponsored by Amron Architectural. Amron Architectural are a company that I've been working with for nearly two years now, and the business has grown rapidly over that time. Um, very experienced staff, uh, very knowledgeable within the architectural interior design space. Um, The ethos of the company is to kind of inspire choice, engage uh, and work with metals and meshes of all different types. They work with classic woven meshes all the way through to bespoke profile cladding panels and uh, you know the experience of the guys there is I would say it's it's right up there in the um, in the UK. They've developed a full range of systems for all aspects of internal and external environments from bespoke ceilings, gantry systems, specialised partitions to large external facade systems and and pretty much everything in between. Um, I think the thing that strikes me about these guys is um, they're they're interested in clients' ideas. They like to talk to clients. They like to know what's happening and develop the systems that fit with with the trends but also the design requirements um, of the architects in the industry and the and the clients, so yeah, a company that definitely going places. It's great to have them as a as a sponsor of the podcast. Um, and if you're looking to create those exciting internal and external designs, then um, these are the guys to talk to. Right. So for people that are listening in, there's there's probably a perception that steel is a bit old fashioned. You know, <clears throat> you're telling us that it's not, but I think there is that perception or stigma that the steel industry is a bit old fashioned. It's a bit unwieldy. It's got a lot of people involved in it. A lot of, there's, there's a lot of corporate levels and things like that. A lot of that. history and a lot of government, uh, you know, uh, interventions uh, at certain points, you know, jo- things like job that. Job losses there by putting people in the steel industry, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, How do you see it going forward? Because you're obviously positive. You're obviously going to say, look, we've got huge amounts of potential here and we really need to build this business, you know, build the steel industry back up in the UK because we've got all of this stuff. And especially with the scrap, this is giving us huge advantages. But one of the things that I've always thought has been an issue and it's been raised many times before is the electric prices here in the UK and that being very, very prohibitive it's you know, worse than that, right? Talk, talk me through yeah, it. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I was always a bit skeptical on it in a way because, so obviously, you know, you need, you need, any, you need electrical energy for, for the arc furnace, whereas you, it's predominantly sort of chemical for, for the, the blast furnace uh, buff process. Now, the UK, obviously, we've, we've, and, and other European nations have had a really big push 
towards uh, decarbonizing energy. Yeah, so we've gone down the sort of the wind farm and the photovoltaic route, and we've closed the coal-powered power stations. We we maybe just looking at biofuels as replacements at like Drax and whatever. You know, the big issue we have, and this is, I, I was always looking at it that you know in Europe the domestic consumers pay more than we do, but industry pays less than industry does here, and there's quite a bit of sort of government subsidy and things going on, you know, that, you know, we're whiter than white UK and we follow the rules and, you know, we've kind of maybe uh, missed a trick there, but that's in the past. But roughly, I mean, if you, if you compared prices static, you'd be talking about 17%, right? Now, we, as part of some of the work we've been doing Sustain uh, with, uh, you know, um, some excellent consultants, uh, a guy called John Clayton and another guy called George Bond, I'll name drop them and they'll, they'll hate me for us. But basically we could cut the energy usage of arc steel making by 25%, right? Which would make that 70%, you know, wouldn't matter unless everybody else did it, of course. But what I hadn't realized, and it's, it's really starting to come to the forefront now that we are relying more on sort of renewables and the fact that the, uh, this uh, European connection uh, burned out or whatever, and we, we sort of lost that recently. Obviously you saw that. The spikes in energy prices. So it's not the, the you know, the, the average or the, you know, the static level. And I was at a conference two weeks ago, um, the uh, EEC conference up at uh, Sheffield. And what I hadn't realized was, is that at times, there's times during the day when energy obviously gets scarce because maybe the wind isn't blown or maybe it's blown too hard and maybe there isn't enough sunlight, all that sort of thing. And the energy prices can go from, let's see, I'm making these numbers up, it'll go from like 120 pound a kilowatt hour to 10,000 pound a kilowatt hour, right? Now, how do you cope with that if you were in a production run and, and you get very short notice it's going to happen? And that's what's been happening. And that, that actually could be a killer. And I think energy is one of the, one of the key things. And it, it's one of the big messages I'm, I'm trying to get a, a, across to people is that, you know, we need to, we need to really look at having, um, uh, you know, either, I don't know if you do it on a, a micro generation, uh, format like like mm. this building we're in Those today small so so we're in, we're in the uh the, the swansea university uh specific um active office and basically the whole building um is it's a power plant that powers itself and can power you know there's a bank of charges there for for, for several electric cars and it, you know it doesn't take any energy from the grid i think they've actually been selling it back to the grid so you could do things like that with novel technologies yeah or you could go down the route that i'm really keen on which is uh the basically a small modular nuclear reactor. I know everybody's, you know, safety of nuclear and disposal. Yeah, disposal is a big problem, but almost as if you could sort of take a Trident, uh, you know, Trident submarine, throw the submarine away, keep the power plant. So you've got 40 years there that's safe enough for, for people to be in close proximity to underwater for long periods of time, you know, have something like that actually as a power plant for not just a steel plant, but, you know, a steel plant plus all of the other foundation industry or associated supply chain all on one site, you know, sort of all, um, you know, uh, your waste is my, you know, is my raw material, you know, that sort of thing, all working collectively, having something like that to put with these, um, that, that could be a very useful way going forward because I don't think we're, we've reached the maturity level of renewables <clears throat> that we really need to be at. We're getting there. Um, and I know the government like kicking, you know, numbers out of, uh, you know, just how, what percentage of power we actually, we get from, from renewables. But I think some of that's kind of pick the right time and day to, to get the numbers. But I think we're not quite there on that. And we're not quite there on the storage side either. 
So until we get there, I mean, we've probably got enough. Um, I've seen figures that we've got maybe, you know, 500, if we, if everyone switched to sort of nuclear, we'd probably have 500 years of, of, of power, you know, um, without uh, significant issues, <laughs> apart from if we have problems with the reactors going or, you know, wherever and disposal, you know, we've always got to think about that, but that, that could give us the chance to sort of develop, you know, because I think what we're doing now is we're on a cliff edge and we're almost saying it's got to be green, but the impact of that on industry and everything else, <laughs> I mean, we don't end up like California. I mean, they, they've had, you know, yeah, they're not allowed to, they've all got these, um, you know, all these sort of people in Beverly Hills with electric cars. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the South Park episode with the, uh, the, the yeah, they're mm -hmm. the, like stiffing their own farts, yeah. <laughs> um, so so basically, basically, you know, all these ultra green people who are, you know, really well off and can afford these things and they can't charge them up because they don't have the power. And I don't know if you guys saw, um, it was a Michael Moore's um, film that he did about a year ago about, you know, the state of renewables in the, in the US. And uh, academics in the UK hate it, you know, but there, there are some truth, there are some truths in there. And effectively um, what happened was, is uh, they went down this route and actually, I actually saw them in the 1990s. I was on a holiday with me and my family. And there was all these, um, you know, wind farms, sort of Arizona and all that sort of thing, you know, as you're driving through the, the desert and the photovoltaics and stuff. 10 years ago, roughly, 12 years ago, I went back on another holiday and it was really interesting watching this Michael Moore film because I saw exactly what he put in this film, that all these dead wind farms, all, you know, rusted, all these photovoltaics all smashed up and blown everywhere. And, you know, it's, it all, it didn't, it didn't end, end well. And one of the power stations that I think was sort of pushed by the sort of the Swartz, the Schwarzenegger governor, yeah. you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, um, it, it needed, you know, coal-fired power stations to sort of support it, otherwise it couldn't run. So it was like a, you know, it was almost like a, a mirage of what, you know, reality was. And I think, I think we're getting really far with renewables. And I think renewables do have a, you know, it, you know, this building proves, you know, and, and there's, as, as I've sort of mentioned to you earlier on, um, sort of uh, Professor Worsley's group are looking at, uh, they've, they've actually put to, together, um, it's basically a street of these ultra efficient, you know, houses for low-income families and, and effectively these guys who are trialing it don't have any energy bills you know and, and, and you know because if they had electric vehicles that could charge them up yeah. you know and have sort of free uh you know free fuel for the car but i think um we're not quite there yet and it's a big worry of mine that if we if we jump too soon and also you've got to balance are we really sort of at that point of near the point of no return for the climate so it's a judgment call but I really do feel that we're not quite there yet. And what we could end up doing is, is almost going backwards because we can't create the energy that we need because energy is just as important as steel. Because, you know, if we, if we don't have the energy, then we can't do anything really. Is that the biggest concern then about just being able to get cheap enough energy for us to be efficient? Because obviously we've spoken at length, haven't we, before we've done this podcast with you. So I know a lot of your opinions and things that are going mm. on. So you're obviously very pro the steel industry in the UK and the potential, but obviously electric, if, if we've got expensive electricity, it, it's really tough for us to compete. It's, it's, it's all about the availability. Um, and that's what's driving the cost of, and obviously, yeah, this is the cost, there's added cost of, you know, um, producing these green, um, the is it the farms. biggest issue though? Do you think the electricity or is, is there other things that we need to kind of be aware of as well? In terms of powering them or? No, just in terms of factors that could mean that, you know, the things that we want to do or that you want to 
push with the steel industry in the UK. Is electricity the biggest potential problem that we've got as a cost to, to mean that we can't be as competitive? Or are there other things that we need to be aware of and other factors that we need to put on the oh, table and be talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, one, one of the big factors is the fact that, you know, um, it's the operational costs as well, because, you know, if you if you go to, um, I don't know, India or China, I mean, I don't know the figures, but I imagine um, someone who's working on a plant there wouldn't get anywhere near as much as would be expected in, in the UK or Europe. No, or whatever. no. So we've got, you know, we've got, we've got these, um, you know, we've got these other costs and things like that. And the, that offset from that from us to them then allows, you know, because it's a volume commodity product allows them to sort of come in and, and sort of take over and we can't compete, you know, obviously because of that. But I think, um, you know, that that's a big one, but that's also related to if you can get the energy prices right and the raw materials prices right, maybe there's room for that operational cost, if you could drive those down. But that, that's where we've been for the last 20 years at least. So if, if you if you look at um if, if you looked at the UK steel industry sort of before thinking about Tata Steel, so when it was chorus, and then it was sort of Tata, and then it was sort of split up into Liberty British Steel and, and Tata Steel. And and you know that if you were to look at the, the sort of the shedding of staff, that was the way they were trying to sort of make sure that they they, they met the margins and that you know the, 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 the making sure the bottom line was, was wasn't wasn't negative, and I think they were behind the curve a bit on it. Um, you know, if you look in hindsight, but that that was the only mechanism because obviously globally, it doesn't matter where you are globally, they're always going to cost the same. The coal is going to cost the same. You know, all these things are going to cost the same. It's going to cost the same for the equipment. You know, to put a new you know new kit in all that sort of thing. So I think it's almost like in a global market where everything is actually um, you know the same price for everyone. You've got to look at the factors that are, that are different. So energy is one of them. Operational costs for you know for people and and you know all that sort of thing. That's another one. And um, there's also added elements like um, you know your health and safety, which has a cost. And um, I'm not saying that China and India don't have. I know India do have um, you know excellent sort of health and health and safety in the in the plants, but you know in the UK that's been a big driver. That's a, it's a cost, but you know it's, it's a valuable thing, and we should absolutely do it. Um, but I think the, the the other side of it is is the the carbon tax as well. So you've got this taxation on carbon emission, and I doubt China has a has a carbon tax, or you know, I doubt India does. I don't know, but um, definitely sort of in Europe, and uh, it's another cost on top. So it's almost like that's been used as a as a whip to to try and to, to whip it into shape to to make sure that everybody goes down this decarbonisation route. But it's not been effective because it's actually removed cash potentially that could have been used for development because they, it's not like they can change overnight and uh, you know an interesting conversation I've, I've had you know with several people is this almost like tartar steel like could like instantly now just right okay we're going to go um carbon capture and storage and utilization or whatever and they could buy all of the you know all the stuff you know all the collectors so all the gas is collected and all this sort of thing and it's it's sort of shipped by boat, which is the only way I think they can do it to the pipeline um, that then goes um, across the country to, uh, I guess, the northeast and, you know, the, the old sort of oil fields, that sort of thing, because that's there's no pi direct pipeline that could be used. And the next day they go out of business because, you know, it's cost so much and they're never going to get that back. And they're never going to be able to say, um, oh, our steel's cleaner in terms of green credentials um, and therefore you should pay £100 a tonne more for it or something, you know? That might actually come into effect now because of this, you know, this shift in people's attitudes. Because 
I can see now that, that somebody would, you know, maybe look at two things and, and, and right, that one's 50 quid, that one's 100 quid, but that one's damaged the environment and I know this one hasn't. I think quite a few people would do that. And I mean, would you pay an extra grand or five grand on top of the you know cost of your car if you knew it was, you know, it was all sort of recycled and green? And you, you probably would, wouldn't you? You know, you if could you were, afford it. Because that's, that's, if the, you can that's afford the it. thing, isn't it? Yeah, if you I can mean, afford it. Yeah, if you can afford to do it and it keeps you competitive depending on where you are further down the supply chain, it's, it's definitely, look, we're not arguing that it's not the right, you know, not the right thing to do. No, 100% it is. But I think sometimes you've still got that, Sometimes people just want to buy at the cheapest bloody price, though. You're right, but I think um, the point I was trying to make was: is today, I think there's more people who are actually on that other side. Whereas, if you even went back five years, I think I'm trying to I'm trying to work out where the exact point is where everyone sort of seemed to have shifted. But I think even five years ago, you probably have um, you know far more people who just say, "No, I just go for the cheap one. Mm. Not bothered. Don't believe in it." This podcast is sponsored by Anglo Stainless. Anglo Stainless are a stockholder of pipe fittings and flanges based in the UK. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Anglo Stainless for, well, for many years actually. Uh, I've experienced the quality of their materials and service firsthand with um, thousands of items in stock from low pressure BSP all the way through to high pressure forge fittings as well as butt weld, hygienic gaskets, pipes, valves, and flanges to suit. They're a great place to find the products you need all in one place. They've got a really experienced team supplying products across the UK and also overseas. But for more details, check out the podcast show notes or give them a call. Uh, they can well recommend it from me and would be a great addition to anyone's supplier network. Order with confidence from the team at Anglo Stainless. But now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, we're just... It, everything's getting more like it, isn't it? You know, it's like, I think it, it, we're just getting more educated with things. And I think wherever we go now, you know, even if you're going to put litter in a bin in a high street, there's one for bottles and there's one for general waste, isn't there? Whatever it may be, whatever you're trying to recycle. And it will only, by having more education, like you say, people are getting to a point where they would rather spend a little bit more to know that it's, Mm. It's uh, safe in the planet, should we say? You're right in what you're saying as well. I mean, it's sort of it's it has seeped through from um, sort of government through sort of you know the councils and all yeah. that. It's, it's like being training, hasn't it? Like yeah. you know to start thinking of these things. Well, they just start to make you think about it, don't they? That's the whole thing. If you start mm. getting it from the from a start level, if you look at say the next generation, like my, probably our children who are like what you're saying, eight, you're twelve. Like that, the way they look at life will be completely different to the way we've done it because we're getting educated halfway through our lives. Where now people are being born and being educated from the start, aren't they? That's right, yeah. And it'll just be... Uh, There'll be something else that they're hard ah, yeah, there as well. Of course they will. Of course they will. It's progress, isn't it? Yeah. With Sustain, because obviously we've spoke a lot here about recycling effectively, haven't we, for a while now. So, yeah, before we get into the, the 10, are they called pillars? What are they? Right. You don't slightly out, you're slightly out on the number, right? Yeah, having order. Right, okay. Um, we had, um, we call them tasks, yeah. But the, How the, many have we got? Subjects. There's nine originals, and we've got another three sort of uh, that have that have been. Sort so you've got nine-ish to twelve. So we've got twelve. We've got twelve. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into the twelve tasks, now I know the lingo. What's the kind of the elevator pitch of what sustain is, just so people can get an idea? Yeah. Of what um, sustain, um, and and you know I've got to say this this was amazing, and and um, it's the first time a project the size of sustain. So in total, within kind contributions from industry, we've got. Five of the UK's top producers uh, with the, the, the five. We don't. 
Yeah, of course we can. Um, so um, so we've got, um, I'll start with Liberty Steel. Yeah. So there's there's Liberty Steel involved and then Forge, Sheffield Forge Masters. Yeah. Um, we've got British Steel, we've got Tartar Steel, and we've got Seltzer Steel. So it's the, it's the main volume product. You know, if you would, uh, you know, add up the tons from those, that come very close to the 7.2 million that we produce annually, you know, so. So people who've not heard about sustain, you've got, as you've told me now, there's 12 tasks that you're kind of committed to looking after. And this is almost like, it's almost like an R&D function for these big five, uh, the big five mills, if I'm getting it right, mm -hmm. um, that you're going to be looking at the things that they need to be doing rather than having their own R&D departments. So... Could you run through these 12 tasks so we can get an idea of what it is that you're actually doing here? And you know, your point about um, they're not having their own R&D and that's, you know, obviously the, the, the decline of steel sort of caused that and we're in a situation where they don't anymore. So it's really good that we can use, um, you know, the universities and academia to get that, but anyway. So basically the way, the way it's been formed is, of course, all these steel companies are different. And in, in the UK, we've got a situation where none of the steel plants are really competitive with one another, which is great great for this project. And Sustain was set up uh, with two grand challenges, uh, carbon neutral, iron steel making and smart steel processing. And obviously there's, there's themes below that and then the tasks, the projects that you mentioned there, uh, Peter, sort of sort of it within that. But the way it was sort of formed was that not all of the steel companies would necessarily be focused on every task, but at least two companies had to be, you know, involved in a task for it to go through and they were all sort of graded. There were loads of, there were loads of projects and it got whittled down to nine. Um, and then we've got the, the extra three sort of bolt-ons at the end. But the, the, the crux of it is, um, it's all about carbon neutralized steel making for the first grand challenge. The second one's about smart steel processing. The first grand challenge is split into um, three themes, as is the second, um, with one uh, cross-cutting theme, which is data-driven innovation. But the themes for carbon neutralized steel making are emissions management and utilization, that mutilation, utilization, sorry. That's the, um, the first um, theme. And under that, we have a, a standalone task on emissions control, where we've got a, um, a joint um, project between Sheffield, so uh, Pete Styring, George Dowson at, at uh, Sheffield, and uh, we've got uh, Andrew Barron and Enrico Andrioli and uh, Wakas Tanvia. At, uh, at Swansea, and what they're looking at is efficient ways, uh, cost-effective, efficient ways, high-throughput ways of extracting the carbon dioxide from the gas from blast furnaces and, and other industrial sources, which are dirty. It's not just pure carbon dioxide, there's nitrogen and other things, which are bad for, you know, obviously the, the process, got to get that pure. So we've got that. Um, so that's been done um, at uh, Sheffield, and then the work that's been done at, uh, at, at Swansea is looking um, more at the um, conversion of that into uh, you know things like dyes, proteins, um, you know, for you could be used for foods, uh, fuel, various things like that. So they're looking at um, using um, algae and other things for bio conversion, that sort of thing to do that. And you know, there's other methods as well. Really important project. Um, the second theme, zero waste steel making. So that's that's split into two tasks in the main, you know, the, the original projects. First one, waste reprocessing, um, effectively is looking at, you know, can we solve the plastics crisis? You know, so we've got this David Attenborough, you know, the plastic crisis. What do we do with all this plastic? We could use it as a fuel, you know, in the blast furnace or for, you know, in the arc furnace as a carbon source. Obviously we'd have to, we'd have to be careful about the carbon dioxide that's produced and we'd have to use carbon capture and storage, which feeds into task one, you know, to, to do that, um, carbon capture and utilization. 
but that is looking at alternatives, you know, household waste, plastics. Can that be reused as a fuel for the blast furnace or as a, you know, a, a source of carb and a fuel for the, uh, for the arc furnace as well? And that's that, that project's been doing some amazing stuff and they've actually proven, you know, that it, it has been done in various degrees around the world, um, but they've really sort of taken the next step on it. And that's Pete Holloman's group. He's doing it. Amazing job with uh, Eric. Um, he's, uh, he, you know, they're both uh, doing a, a fantastic job on that project. And then we've got task three, which is about scrap utilization. It's a Warwick based project um, uh, led by Zushu Lee. And it's obviously looking at um, the, the things I was talking about with, with scrap. He's, he's looking effectively at what we can actually do with the scrap. He's actually at the moment focusing more upon um, how far we can go with some of these elements. So it's sort of stated that you can't go above a certain copper level or whatever for specifications, but he, he's looking at what the actual mechanical properties differences are to get a baseline. And then there's other, other work that's going on that's actually looking at, uh, you know, how we can um, better, you know, better separate and, and sort of process the scrap to get what we need. So almost like precision engineered scrap. The guys I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, George and John, they've developed uh, what they call cold steel making. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across that, but effectively you make the alloy when it's cold in the scrap form. So you know exactly what the chemical composition is. Then you just melt it and you, you've got the product. You're not, you're not taking something that you don't know what it is and then trying to wrangle it into something that you need it to be. Um, so that's, that's a sort of a, a big thing. And, and they've actually done quite a lot of workshops and trainings for the Celsa and Tata steel plant, um, you know, through, through sustain, which has, has been fantastic. Then we've got, uh, the, Third theme, data-driven innovation, that's cross-cutting between the, the two uh, grand challenges. And that has a, a project that's uh, called Digital Steel Innovation. And that is effectively a hub where they're looking at things like blockchain. And, uh, you know, I, I, th I think the, the blockchain angle for um, material passports is, is absolutely, you know, fantastic because not only would you know where it comes from, but you'd know the full history of it. And uh, of each, you know, the steel product you buy, you know, you know, is it where it's it come from? It doesn't matter where it is. It could be in your laptop or whatever. You could actually scan that. There'd be a unique identifier as part of that. And you could access to see exactly what the history of the thing was. So you know exactly how much energy was used to make the part and et cetera, break it right down. Um, it would actually help with government policy as well, because if you could actually trace, you know, when you knew exactly where the steel came from, you could start to really police it. So you wouldn't have the situation where I could buy some steel from China or buy some steel from UK, process them both in the UK, make the final product and say they're both British made, you know, it would stop all of that and it would stop the, the undercutting of prices, things like that. So that's understood. I think that's a, that's a great, uh, you know, a great thing. Then we've, we've got, um, you know, work that's looking at, uh, sort of using AI um, to, to assist with the process to make sure we have the, you know, the, the steel making process optimized, um, you know, using the latest technology. And the guys are actually looking at things like, um, you know, the AI that's used in Facebook and, 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 you know, all these other things, you know, it's got its applications there, but, you know, maybe that technology could also be applied to various things in steel. It's already been done. I mean, there's a ton of source code out there, um, you know, that's freely available in effect that people have written. Um, that can just be sort of used, taken and used, you know, in Python or something like that. And uh, you can you can you can do some amazing things with that. Um, so I don't think I forgot. I think I mentioned the uh, the supply chain innovation side of things as well. So yet again, I mean, this is, uh, is, is work that um, Jan Godsell and, uh, and and Zaki are doing up at uh, at Warwick. 
And that is all about, you know, optimizing supply chains, using the latest digital technology and making sure you've got, you know, the best alignment and, and you know, cost reduction, all that sort of thing, just in time, you know, all that, all that sort of thing sort of fits into it, um, which I think is, uh, is absolutely amazing. Try to think where else. Uh, yeah, maintenance as well. So using uh, AI and machine learning for, for maintenance of your equipment and understanding, you know, how the life of it and, and replacing it just in time, you know, before it fails and all that sort of thing. Um, so the, uh, the the machine learning stuff and the blockchain's been done at uh, Swansea by Arnold Beckman and uh, QC. And the, as I mentioned, the, the supply chain innovation stuff's being done up at, uh, at Warwick. And then we've got um, another Warwick project that's looking at AI just in terms of, uh, you know, how it could be used in general in the steel plant, you know? So you could have dangerous situations where we still have people there and we can get those people out and we can, you know, we do some, some good stuff for that. And that's, uh, that's currently being led by uh, Giovanni Montana. And then we've got a task five, which is intelligent steel making. And it's taking the AI side um, a bit further and almost combining the AI with physics and sort of having the best of both worlds. And uh, Michael Owinger at, uh, at Warwick's really, uh, you don't mind me name dropping here. Um, he, he's doing some really good stuff there to optimize the process based not just on you know, the machine, uh, the artificial intelligence side of things, but also backed up by physics as well. And even some of these models now are sort of like, you need supercomputers to, to crunch them for days. So in effect, he's, he's kind of finding out all of the answers in effect. And then, you know, having a map of, of how things, so when something actually reacts a certain way, he's almost got the, you know, the outcome of what could happen. It's already been sort of predefined within boundaries. And yet again, I mean, it's really novel work. I think it's, it's, it's really exciting stuff. Moving on, so uh, theme four, um, which is smart low energy production. We've got a thermal efficiency project in there that's led by uh, Professor Cameron Pladel Pierce at Swansea. Um, yet again, I mean, looking predominantly at refractories and increasing the uh, performance and uh, efficiency of, of refractories, but also using uh, the refractories as a, as a battery in effect. So you can actually um, produce refractory material that works like a, a thermocouple almost. And if obviously, if you connect a thermocouple to a thermocouple, wherever you've got a thermopile, which is almost a battery, yeah? Mm -hmm. So it's a, exactly the same sort of thing. And, you know, instead of all this heat energy being wasted, some of it, not all of it, can now can be converted using this into electrical energy that can be used for other things, you know? Could be used in a basic form for sensors around the, you know, the unit that you don't want to have, you know, power to or whatever, batteries. Um, but it could also be used for, for generation, for storage later as well. Then we've got um, task seven, which is disruptive processes. It's a Warwick-led project with Claire Davis and Zushu Lee. That's looking at uh, neonet shape casting and also looking at uh, use of uh, hydrogen for, for reducing DRI. So DRI being a hydrogen DRI being a substitute for blast furnace iron, you know, or gas powered DRI, which obviously emits CO2. And then we've got theme five, uh, which is new process for new products. I'm nearly there. We've got task eight, uh, which is smart sensors for real-time measurement. And that is another Claire Davis project, Professor Claire Davis over Warwick. And that's looking at having um, very robust sensors uh, that are very close to the steel as it's sort of going through uh, a rolling process or thermal process, wherever. And it could actually measure the changes in the microstructure, um, you know, and, and the grains and all that sort of thing. Typically, that would be something that, you know, you would know the parameters and you would put it through and you might not get it right every time. This would almost self-tune based upon what the, you know, what the grain structure was like. And, it, you know, it, it sort of takes it to the next level. Um, and that's, that project's actually really um, moved forward. 
I would say it's almost at the stage where it's sort of pre-commercialization. You know, still some test work needed, but it's moving really fast. And, and then we've got task nine, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier on about simplifying, you know, the, the um, chemistry of the materials. So this is uh, Professor Mark Rainforth at Sheffield uh, is leading this um, with, with Pengong as uh, the, the PDRA. And they're effectively looking at, can you use thermal and heat treatment, obviously with a given primary chemistry, to give you a maximum of differentiation of product types. So if you can master that and you can get that right, we don't have all these different grades of steel based on chemistry. When you melt it all, it's all pretty much the same. And that solves a lot of the problems that you would have if you had lots of alloyed materials, but then melt it down and then you've got a mix of them all, you know, which comes back into the, the downcycling side of things. So on top of that, there's last three, these bolt-ons. So these were, them, uh, these were feasibility studies and we had one that was sort of augmenting the work that uh, Professor Holloman was doing on the, uh, the, the waste processing side and uh, looking at novel reductants for, for blast furnace. And that's part of the, the zero waste steel making theme. Um, we have another one called Thermos. And this is one I'm, uh, I'm sort of quite close to because it's some of my old colleagues at Durham. Uh, so Al Alton Horsfall and uh, Andrew Gallant. Um, and they've actually developed a sensor technology you don't need batteries for. Um, it's almost like a wireless type technology, but you can take this thing up to 700 degrees and it's still going to work, you know, without cooling or anything like that. So basically it's based on a, a different technology to silicon as a semiconductor. I can't go into too much detail, but um, it's sort of in trial stage at the moment. And they're wrecking with uh, some of the work that they've been doing. They reckon they can get that up to, um, you know, 1600 degrees. Uh, can you imagine that? Can you imagine a sensor that you, you know, heat up to 1600 degrees and it doesn't break? You know, and it's, it's sort of it makes the measurements. In my, they're all right, they don't melt. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing stuff. And, and let's say I'm, I'm, quite, I'm, I'm quite keen on that one. It's a good one. And then we've got um, another one, which is uh, it's a, an, an add-on to Task 9, the late stage product defi definition integration project. And that's um, called UTRED, U-H-T-R-E-D. And that project is sort of looking at, uh, I think it's, it's sort of for nuclear sector, it's looking at this um, differentiation through heat treatment and, and through, uh, you know, the use of uh, rolling and, and rather than using chemistry. So it's, as I say, there's some really exciting projects there. I probably took about an hour going through them, but uh, you know, that, that's kind of technology wise, that's what Sustain is, is about at the moment. And so, so lots. Oh, it, it's it huge. Well, it is huge. It, re it really is. And, and, but every one of these tasks, you know, it, it, it will, it, you know, it, it is for each one of these tasks are very, very important to, to get us to that, you know, zero or net, net zero sort of carbon for, for steel making. And a lot of the learnings from these projects could also be passed on to other foundation industries as well. High temperature glass, for instance, you know, so it's, uh, you know. Let's hope you get there and achieve it. I said to repeat when, when you ran. Yeah. So obviously looking at those 12 tasks, you'd obviously like British manufacturers in steel. Yeah. Do you see it being a bright future or a green future if, you know, on <laughs> the pun? <laughs> I'm a natural optimist, so yeah. Um, but you know what? I think, you know, it's it's put up or shut up time now. And I, I don't see another country that's got the resources and opportunity. Um, I mean, like, like the Industrial Revolution, you need the raw materials and you need the innovation, right? In terms of steel, we've got the raw materials. You know, we discussed that earlier. We've got the innovation. We've got some, you know, seriously sort of bright, out-of-the-box thinkers in the UK, always have done. Um, it's something I guess the UK is kind of famous for, yeah? So we've got those two planets have aligned. 
Um, but we need, you know, obviously we need the government support, which looks like it's coming, you know, earliest things with them, fund and sustain, um, two years ago, because it's been running for, 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 for over two years now. And, and basically, uh, you know, I think given, um, not which has been the press, but obviously the nationalisation of Forge Masters, I think, and, and what happened with British Steel as well. So when British Steel, Grable British Steel sort of stumbled, um, the government picked up the tab and made sure it survived, you know, a conservative government. So I think, I think they're starting to really get it. And I think they're, they're starting to really get that, you know, all of these things I was talking about before, these sexy things like your Rolls Royce stuff and all of these, you know, these great things that the UK makes. If you haven't got the steel, and we haven't got control of the steel, we haven't got it. We need to have that sovereign steel capability. And I think the government gets it. So if those three planets align, then I think we've got an amazing future. How's your head? Yeah, that was a lot for me. <laughs> it's a lot. I think it just proves actually, one, that I can't take a lot of information in. But, uh, <laughs> you can. <laughs> but, this like, um, just the levels of technicality, you know, when you're working in like metal distribute where you're selling foreign, really commodities, I suppose. You almost, when you listen to people say that kind of technical side of the industry is not really there anymore, and you almost think, well, I don't think it's needed. A lot of people know what the, you know, purchase, like, it's just another level, isn't it? You know, really, the technical level between people who've worked in mill manufacturers to them working in a distribution centre, it's just, it's just another world, really. Yeah, yeah, it sounded it. I mean, again, I was kind of a little bit more aware of some of these things because of because of my dad working in a mill so him talking about the mountain yeah. you know the and steel the making bedtime process. stories were a lot about that were they Peter? yeah yeah sometimes yeah if you wanted to get us off to sleep quickly yeah, yeah. but you know some <laughs> of it's still kind of uh some of it still stays you retain it but yeah richard's um richard's going to be coming back um probably for season three he's really keen to do what we're doing, jump on the other side of the fence and start doing some interviews. So might have a guest spot for Richard well, in season three. Well, he's written an article for the, in the Metal Magazine well, as well, a few, yeah. He's done a few. a few. Yeah, and he gets good traction on his articles as well. I think he's, you know, he, he knows what he's talking about. And I think the thing is, you can hear in the podcast, he's just so passionate, just so passionate. And you need those type of people who are the kind of, the brand ambassadors for for the UK metal industry, really. So, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Um, as we said at the end of the first one, you know, get involved, drop us messages online, contact us. If there's people you want us to be talking to, what those topic areas you want us to be covering, then let us know and we'll uh, we'll add them into uh, season three. Yeah, start following us on our Instagrams, Compton Group. We've got a Metal Guys Talk Business uh, podcast channel via LinkedIn. We're doing a lot of recording of the podcast creating snippets around you know some of the parts that people are talking about so you know get involved in those um you know thank you to our sponsors um the uk metal expo amron architectural anglo and um yeah last one as well make sure you have a look at the metal guys uh the metal guys it's all business so you have listening yeah. to that yeah have a look at the metal magazine as well it's a digital publication that we've released recently second edition's gone out and we're just about to release the third aren't we in the coming weeks so you know if you can start you know having a look look at the way with the business of Compton Group is changing that'll, uh, that'll be much appreciated also see you next week yeah end of me heavy pitch I know yeah it was, that was aggressive that one Mike. it was yeah ciao <laughs>